Ukulele Tales, the ukulele podcast with John Atkins. Hello and welcome to Ukulele Tales, the ukulele podcast. As ever, a great big thank you to Carla Brand Music for sponsoring the show. If you go to carlabrand.com slash uketeacher, you will get 10% off any ukulele or anything at all on their website just because you listen to Ukulele Tales. So a big, big thank you to Carla. Remember, if you want to send me a message, you can go ahead and email uketeacher at grabyouryuke.com to let me know your thoughts on this episode or any episode or anything at all, really. As I love to hear from you all, and I do read and reply to every single message I get. Eventually. I had lots and lots of lovely comments and messages about last week's conversation with Ron Telpner, which was just a really special episode all round. So thank you very much to everyone who took the time to reach out to me after that one. And thanks, of course, once again to Ron for sharing your story with everybody. This week, we're getting to know journeyman musician Phil Dolman, who has seen and done so much in the world of music, from pub gigs to festivals to writing books and recording albums to performing on top of the pops. And not necessarily in that order, by the way. Pretty much everyone in the UK scene knows Phil, I think. And he's someone who just about everybody likes as well, as far as I can tell. He dropped by my house the other day on the way to a folk music festival, and we had a long, long chat about, amongst other things, stage fright, the Ed Sheeran court case, performing, or should that be lip-syncing, on live kids' TV, why he took his music off Spotify, and how he ended up playing the ukulele at Downton Abbey. But we start off by talking about YouTube, and it turns out that Phil has actually been making videos on there even longer than I have. So I had a YouTube channel since about 2000 and... Well, in fact, I had a YouTube channel when it was Google Video. Oh, really? Before yeah. even... And yeah. I think, I think like YouTube was around, but they were both happening at the same time. And then I migrated. Well, it all got eaten up and everything got migrated across to YouTube. And I didn't... I don't think any of those videos, bar one or two, might have survived. A lot of the older ones ended up being binned. But I had about a 1,000 subscribers. And I had... Gosh, I don't know... Um, Nowhere near the, the number of hours viewing that you had to have to be monetized. And then when lockdown came, after about two months of that, I thought this isn't going to go on longer. So I got a new computer, sold off some PA gear that I wasn't going to be using, got a new computer, bought a decent camera and thought I'll make some videos. Not really for any other reason than just to stop myself going mad, just walking around the house, shuffling around thinking, what do I do with no gigs? Yeah. And um and at that point I was putting out on average for that first year I put out more than one a day. No kidding. Yeah. On, on average, so I might put out five in a day and then nothing else for that week. Yeah. And some of them were big batches, so I did a whole series of videos with every single major, minor, minor seventh, dominant seventh chord in three positions on the neck, a different video for each one with just me showing diagrams and my fingers and going, here's a C, here's another C. Here's another C. Right. Simple short videos. But of course, that was what, 48 videos? Yeah. They yeah, all went yeah. up in one week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You need to spread <laughs> you know? these things out a bit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You, and I can't do that. I can't make yeah. something and then hang. You know, people release albums and they go, this is coming out in six months. Here's a teaser. Yeah. Yeah. I've just finished mastering it and it's on. I yeah. can't hang on to stuff like that. But then I think so. even that's changing. Like the whole album thing is changing, I think, now because yeah. I mean, I've spoken to other musicians about it. They say, um, like they would like to put out an album every two years, but because of the Spotify algorithm or whatever it is now, they just have to put out a single basically whenever they have one. Mm. So I, I don't know. Things change. I'm trying to get in. Well, not trying to. I am in the habit of I will spend like a couple of days a month filming all my videos. Uh, and then I've got like five weeks worth of, of things to post. Yeah. When you're putting out five videos a day. How did you have the time to edit them and stuff? Well, it was literally I would film them during the day. I would edit them during the evenings. Yeah. And then go to bed and get up the next morning and film some more and edit some more. And they'd be uploading overnight. Okay. <laughs> um, I do remember the days when it would take like 10 hours to upload a YouTube video or something. Yeah. We we didn't have fast internet at the start of lockdown, but we managed to get upgraded um, fortunately, to the point where it wasn't taking so long. And my computer, because I bought the new computer, wasn't taking four hours to render a video anymore, which yeah. my old creaky laptop was. Yeah. 
Hey, you're on the most recent cover of uh, Uke magazine. I am. And I just read it. And I also For just read... For the second time. I was going to say, yeah, because you were also on the first cover first one, of the yeah. first ever one as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, that was really nice. That first one was interesting because I didn't know there was going to be a magazine. So what they just said, can we interview you for... Uh, I was doing a gig. I happened to be doing a, a, a Christmas party gig for the guys at World of Ukes. So it was Matt and and, uh, and Andy, who are, well, I was going to say the League of Ukulele Gentlemen band, but they're not called that anymore because this very week they've relaunched themselves. And I think they're now called, I hope I get this right, Warehouse of Thieves. They've dropped the ukulele thing from the name and they've taken on more members and grown. And uh, But yeah, they, they were doing their Christmas party with their sort of first incarnation of their band and invited me to play. And Matt, being the photographer that he is, does all those lovely pictures for the magazine himself. So he's the writer and the photographer as well? Yeah, and Diane, his wife, um, comes from the publishing industry. So ah. she's brilliant at doing all the, the layout and design. I was so going to say, it looks them, really, it's, it's a really yeah. good quality magazine, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. Yeah. They t- took that picture of me and didn't say, it just said, can I just take some pictures of you? And it was a lovely old building in the background, took some snaps. And then a bit later on, he sent me a mock-up of the front cover saying, we're going to do this magazine and we might as well stick this picture on the front. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do an interview then. Um, so it was lovely to be asked back to to appear again and to think how my answers to questions have changed in eight years. Yeah. Uh, my attitude to everything seems to have changed dramatically in that short period of time. On your website, it said something about you're an occasional contributor to the magazine. Do you just mean because of those interviews or do you write columns or something? Oh, every mm-hmm. every single one. I've you're managed to get one. my face in every single oh, one really? in some okay. way, shape yeah. or form. Yeah, so I've either written – I tend to write a piece for each one. So there'll be a, a, a lesson or a piece of music to learn in almost all of them. And then the ones where I've not done that, I'm probably doing one of those little pieces on – five things I've learned about this or ten things I wish I knew when I started or whatever. But I saw you one of eight um, tips to – uh, like prepare for playing live, basically. Yes. Yeah. And you, you mentioned you suffer from stage fright. Is that still the case? That can't still be right, can it? Or N- nowhere near as much as it used to be. Although weirdly, having had a couple of years off, I've started to notice at the first few gigs a little bit of the shakes coming back. Oh no! Um, okay. Because I'd just been out of it for so long. But I'm pretty sure that um, that once I've started doing a few more, it'll be it'll be fine again. And because uh, I know what happened last time uh, yeah i used to be so very terrified of getting on stage the real story behind it is i was in bands from being in school yeah and then when i was in my early 20s left uh with my um then fiance my wife to go and live in london and it was just me then and so i got my guitar and i was writing a few songs and trying to get a few gigs and I'd never been nervous on stage before because I'd had four or five other people on stage with me. And in a couple of the bands I was in, I was the bass player. So I was standing at the back, no yeah, pressure, having fun. Yeah. And then I walk out on stage just with a guitar and find that I, I'm i literally shaking. And I would come off stage and I would be physically sick when I came off stage. And I have no recollection of what I'd just played. Um, some of the gigs, I started to record them on a little portable recorder, mini disc. That's where we're going back. A little yeah. mini disc recorder. You'd get the, the sound guy to plug it into the desk. And I started listening to my own gigs and thinking, it's not that bad. People clapped. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought I screwed that up, but I, it turns out it was fine. And I realized the only way to get over it was just to convince my brain that this was normal. So I did everything I could do. Every open mic didn't matter what it was i went and played and um yeah almost like a switch at one point my brain kind of went so this is what we're doing is it i better stop being an idiot about this and just get let you get on with it yeah and and it went away and and like i say just after lockdown a couple of the first gigs after lockdown i was a little bit shaky and i could feel the leg wobbling again just like it used to and I thought, yeah, I need to get out a little bit more and do a few more and get back in the saddle. What do you prefer doing, workshops or playing music live? I think my, my first love is playing music yeah, uh, and playing it in front of people. Um, I did a few live you know, um, streams from my living room during lockdown. And whilst it was great to be doing it, the audience was the missing part. Though. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Definitely, I, but but weirdly, over the years, I've stopped noticing as much of a difference between performing and workshops. So I kind of treat the workshops like a gig. Okay. They're just another kind of gig. 
So there's that interaction with the audience still and everyone's sitting there looking at you. And rather than saying entertainers, they're going, show us something, teach us something. But really the dynamic is pretty much the same. But certainly in terms of going to a club, say, and being booked to do an hour's workshop for them or going to a local pub and playing for two hours yeah. to a, a an audience that you know don't even know who you are yeah, and yeah. didn't notice there was a band on tonight and, yeah. and walking away with a fraction of what you got paid for doing the yeah. workshop. So it all averages out that, yeah, teaching definitely earns more money than play. It's funny you should mention about um, people not even realising there's music going on and no disrespect to music, but it can be kind of a background thing. I used to oh, do yeah. I used to do comedy and I've been to pubs where people didn't know there was comedy going on. Oh yeah, that's definitely and that's worse. much worse, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're sort of telling a joke and there's just like people having their own chats or conversations yeah. or whatever. That isn't that's not a fun time. Yeah, you've got to have that interaction with with comedy. Yeah. That was the weird thing, because the band that the Jew I had with, with Ian Emerson, the reentrance, that was essentially a comedy act. But a comedy act that we really, really focused on quality musicianship. We worked. We didn't just do it for a laugh. We wanted the laugh to be people didn't expect us to do what we were going to do. Then we did it. Yeah, that was kind of the joke. Was yeah, but they're not going to do that song, are they? Oh, they are. But they won't do the guitar. Oh, they are doing the guitar solo on the it ukulele. Was kind of, yeah, just yeah. two ukuleles. Yeah, and um, so part of the joke was that. But we also had a, a good on-stage relationship. So the gigs where we got booked to be a covers band where the audience might like the songs and recognise them and, and sing along, but they weren't really paying attention to the banter and the idea behind it were never as satisfying as the ones where the audience got the little jokes yeah. or got the funny little glances and things like that that were all very carefully you know, put into the act. Yeah. But at least we could be and did. We could play weddings. And because we did popular stuff, even if people paid no attention to us, we'd just look at each other and go, this is a very well-paid rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Everyone wants to talk to Auntie Gladys, who they've not seen for six months, and that's fine. We'll just run through the set, play it as best we can, miss out all the banter, all the jokes, just play the songs, yeah, and uh, and that'll do very nicely. That's funny. I was just speaking to Plastic Jesus recently, Mm. or you know, their podcast came out recently. I listened to it, yeah. Oh, thanks. And they they said they'd rather get... Actually, I don't want to misquote them. They would rather get a laugh than applause yes. at the end of a song, yeah. which yeah. I think is quite brave, actually, mm. in some ways. You know, most musicians would maybe not have that confidence. I think they'd want to get the applause. Yeah. I think they'd rather yeah. get get a laugh. I think Ian and I would probably have rather have got a laugh than the applause. Yeah. Because that was the bit where it sh- almost like that showed that the audience were actually paying attention. Yeah. To yeah. to get the laugh. You know, people always clap when that's the the other thing with comedy. You've got to hear the punchline yeah. to know that the thing's finished. Yeah. Whereas if you're playing music, when the music stops, you clap. Yeah. Even if you're there over there and you're having a conversation, you just put your drink down and politely clap. Just out of politeness, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. they don't actually have to have recognized what song you were playing. It's yeah. just the gap in the sound. Um so a laugh certainly meant that people were paying attention. I thought that was a really great interview with the guy. I went to see them at the Leicester Comedy Festival. They, they were great. They yeah, they are. They, they sold, are the, yeah. sold the plays out and absolutely, yeah. you know, they absolutely killed them. They were really funny. So there's a quote on your website, and there is context behind the quote, but I'd like to just <laughs> spring it to you without context, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> where you say, uh, I'm not really an Ed Sheeran kind of guy. Yeah. Um, do you want to explain what you mean by that? Yeah, that's specifically aimed at the people that want to come for lessons with me. Okay. Because in the same way that I, I play what I like, I don't want to try and teach things that I'm not really – well, I, I don't like to use the word expert, but I would rather teach things that I know what I'm doing with, um, as well as it being enjoyable for me and as well as me as having thousands and thousands of songs – and pieces charted out that fit that style of music. If somebody wants to come and learn how to play traditional Hawaiian music, I'm not the guy. Yeah. There are many, many better people. I know nothing about that, and I don't pretend to. And it's the same thing. A lot of people want to learn um, you know, current pop songs on the ukulele. And I, know, I mean, you teach a lot of those on YouTube, and yeah. I've deliberately yeah. not done that on YouTube because I know there are people who do that and do it really well and are really on the ball. So they'll, a song will come out and they'll teach that song. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, the song I'm teaching this week is 97 years old. Right. <laughs> Not really on the ball. But right. I just like, I've got to the point where I want to do what I do. So the students I have 
and the people who come to my Patreon. Again, on Patreon, I teach, I have colour-coded themes. I teach jazz, blues, jug band, um, and I've got um, sort of towards country, I call it a little bit country, and then a few different theory and technique themes. But there's no themes for rock or pop or anything like that. It's all basically American music from the 20s to 40s. So I'm in a niche within a niche. I'm in the ukulele niche. And, and I'm also in the, niche, the jug band, the niche, jug band the, yeah. niche, which is a very small one. Yeah. But yeah, that's the stuff I love. So the nice thing is that means that when I teach a lesson, I'm always looking forward to it. Yeah. I know I'm going to enjoy it. I'm not going to sit down and go, oh, this week I am mainly teaching, um, you know, I don't know, no no disrespect to anybody, just names out of the air. I'm mainly teaching Lady Gaga songs. Yeah. Or all the st- I mean, we used to play Lady Gaga songs in the re um, Yeah, right, but, right. But I don't think I would want to sit and, teach those songs and i don't think i'd find it very in a very selfish way i don't think i'd find it very satisfying i'd yeah. much rather teach the stuff that i can get enthusiastic about oh i've i've been there i know exactly what you're saying because i there were certainly times back in the day where i would be like oh there's a new song by again like say no disrespect to anyone just the name of my head billy eilish yeah i've got to do it today yeah while it's like yeah. number there's one trending song or whatever someone else will if i don't yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. and um and like you know, it's not necessarily my favorite kind of music. I don't really know anything about it, and uh, and I don't want to be like rushed into doing something as well. But mm. that's kind of how I felt like it had to be. And now I'm just a bit more like, oh, I'm going to do Money for Nothing because I like that song. Yeah, yeah, I don't care if no one else remembers it or likes. It. And, yeah. and to be fair, people do like that song, I'm sure. But, oh yeah, yeah. But maybe there's yeah. not so many you know, twelve to eighteen year olds who know it. I don't know. Yeah. But basically, anyway, the point is, I'm just doing what I want to be doing yeah. now more. Anyway, I think you hit on yeah. a problem there, though. I think that's is... that's why you've got your million subscribers, Black, and I haven't. Is well, that, maybe yeah. <laughs> is that um, I'm very much aware that the audience for what I do are generally my age and older. Right. Okay. There aren't that many. There are a few, and there are some great young bands coming up. But in terms of mass appeal, the people who like the stuff that I do, which might be stuff like, I don't know, um, old New Orleans Jazz or um, Dr. John or Bill, Big Bill Brunsey or you yeah. know, those sort of things, tend to be people that have listened to that all their lives from when either when they were young. met a guy at a festival the other weekend who told me how he'd been to see Big Bill Brunsey perform. Yeah. This would have been in the 60s, early in the 60s, 60s okay, in, yeah. in London. And he said, yeah, I remember seeing him. He came over on this tour and he played. And somebody else saying, I was at that train station. Have you seen the video where Muddy Waters and um, Sister Rosetta Tharp and, and Sonny Terry and Brandon McGee play on a Manchester railway station oh, yeah, in 1964? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is all before my time, but they're – they're, say, 15, 20 years older than me, and they saw all this cool stuff that I wish I'd seen. Yeah. So they're very much into it from from their youth, and they've yeah. stuck with it. And they're the people that go to jazz festivals and blues festivals and, you know, go on tours to places like Route 66 or go to New Orleans to see, you know, the, the street performers there. That's what they love. Not so many people younger than me yeah. are remotely into the stuff that I do. Yeah. Um, so... I'm aware that that maybe in ten or fifteen years' time, my audience might be a lot smaller than it is now. <laughs> well, no, there, there might be like a whole new audience coming up for you who'll be like, "Wow, you saw Plastic Jesus at the Leicester yeah. thing," you know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, or Mark Gallagher at Canuff or something mm. like that, you know? So who yeah. knows? Yeah. Because um, I know, like, I'm always said, like, oh, I can't believe my dad saw like the Beatles at Finsbury Park or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But then I know I've got a million experiences that I maybe haven't fully appreciated because they're happening now. And then yes. pe- my, you know, maybe Percy will be like, oh, dad, you saw whoever it is, this yeah. band at this time. That's so cool, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But uh, but yeah. it's scary when you you work out a song and, and you're charting it out ready for, say, a, a Patreon lesson. And one I did recently was, I think the date on it was 1890-something. No kidding, really. Um, yeah. It was um, Champagne Charlie. It's a very, very old song. I didn't realize it, how old it was. And I'm looking at that going, God, that's like 130-ish years old, that yeah. song is. Um, we're almost in the realm of people working in classical music, you know, who quite happily perform things that are three, four, five hundred years old. That's true, um, yeah. And are still it, yeah. performing it now. And yeah. I'm thinking, is, this, is some of this stuff going to stick around as long as that? Um, I guess it has the advantage of being music that was made if not in the recorded music age, near enough to it that people did record it. Yeah. 
So stuff that was recorded in the in the twenties and beyond. Well, you're kind of keeping it alive, right? Well, I, I mean, yeah, I think there's there's a that's a a big thing to to sort of have on your shoulders. And I, yeah. I, what I don't what I don't do, and I know some people do, and some people don't, is I I try not to copy. I try to to take the song and do something with it that that means that maybe I'm not keeping it alive in the sense that people will be hearing me do it and not the original. And in fact, it's one of the reasons when I teach stuff on Patreon, I put links under every video going, here's the original. Go and listen to these people doing it. Yeah. Who did it better than me way back. Um, but yeah, I suppose by playing stuff live, that is a way of doing it. Um, YouTube's interesting because you can now listen to and watch anything. many of these performers yeah. now. Even if you can't see film of them, you can listen to them on YouTube with a, a a nice montage of photographs of them. Yeah. But quite a lot of those performers performed well into the era where people filmed them. And you've got the Library of Congress recordings of those blues musicians who were all dragged out of retirement in the even be in the early sixties yeah. to be filmed because people realized that this was their culture and these people weren't going to be around much longer. Yeah. So they sat them in a room and in some cases, you know, gave them a bottle of whiskey and waited while they tried to remember what they used to do. And would play a few songs. And yeah. We've got that, um, which we haven't got with classical music. Yeah. We've only and got not just got notes. it, but got it at the touch of a button. Yeah, instantly. You know, instantly yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So on the subject of Ed Sheeran, which we weren't really talking about, <laughs> but I was just wondering, I was thinking about you because um, that court case court recently. Case. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And it reminded me of the workshop that I saw of you at Ganuf. Yeah. Because what I don't think anyone's really talked about is... I mean, he. let me just uh, sum it up for the listeners in case they're not aware. Ed Sheeran basically got sued by the estate of, I want to say, Marvin Gaye, yeah. because one of his songs has the same chord progression as one of Marvin Gaye's songs. Mm. And there was an argument about, can you even um, copyright a chord progression? Can you claim ownership of it, right? Yeah. And what would I mean, I don't think you can. It, well, in the eyes of the law, you can't. Yeah. It's melody and it's lyrics. Yeah. That's the only copyrightable thing. Thank goodness, because not only do I play a whole bunch of songs that have the same three chords, because I play a lot of blues and early country and jug band stuff and all that stuff has the same chords. Then I also play a lot of jazz, and so much of jazz is based around the chord sequence that I got rhythm. Yeah. Literally, it's called rhythm changes amongst jazz musicians. It's what we all learn how to improvise over. That's the chords to I Got Rhythm, yeah. which is also the chords to the Flintstones theme, right. which is also yeah. the chords to the theme to University Challenge. Is it? They're okay, the same chord sequence. Yeah. You can yeah. play them along to... I love the fact that the Flintstones and University Challenge essentially have the same theme tune. Know. I'm going to have to play them side <laughs> yeah, by side. I had no idea about that. Um, yeah, and so many other songs, so many yeah. jazz standards, or they take bits of them, that, that if this had gone through and been kind of a, a test case... Yeah, the floodgates would have, been... would have opened. Everybody would have sued everybody. Yeah, I don't know if it was this time round because he's been sued before, hasn't he? But I don't know. Maybe it was the time before. Maybe it was the early rumblings of this one that there was an interesting thing about one of the guys who wrote the song with Marvin Gaye had previously been in a band before that and had written another song with the same chord sequence. Mm. So in theory, you could argue that the Marvin Gaye one was stolen or rewritten by the same guy in a new band for Marvin Gaye because that chord sequence had existed in one of his previous songs. Yeah. Almost yeah. plagiarising himself. Yeah. And just the fact that that happened surely means that you can't then sue someone else for being the next chain who uses the same chord sequence. And I don't think they're even exactly the same chords. Right. I think <laughs> there's a, a slight thing, yeah. substitution in there. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm surprised they didn't bust out that Axis of Awesome song, you know, like 24 or 48 four chord songs whatever yeah because they're they just have like hundreds of different songs or same four chords songs with the same four chords <laughs> same all four the way. chords as the Ed Sheeran song exactly yeah yeah, yeah. So, including yeah. the Ed Sheeran song I think yeah. maybe in one of the versions yeah. so yeah yeah so, that would have been a perfect thing to pull out in court yeah because you just show that to a jury and they'd, they'd laugh at it and they'd enjoy it and they go this whole thing's ridiculous yeah yeah. Um, yeah so I should have been yeah. his lawyer you know I should have uh, yeah. should have helped him out there I think the interesting thing is there, there seems to be quite a predatory lawyer involved I don't know if we can say this online but it's this, the same lawyer for the previous court case with the Blurred Lines track oh right okay uh, and that was also the the estate of Marvin Gaye was um, yeah I remember yeah. at the time not really thinking they had much of a case but I think yeah. they did win they won that one they? because yeah. one of them was caught saying that they had 
taken influence from that song. Ah, okay. So even though, strictly speaking, they didn't steal any bits of actual music, he'd said that he wanted it to sound like that song. And, And that was kind of the point where they went, well, you can't say... You weren't aware of it. You can't say it was subconscious. You were consciously listening to this song and copying it. Still, but if we you, all do that. I was going we to say, all do if, you, that. if you get if you can get sued for being influenced by something, yeah, then how is music ever going to progress? Because yeah. your everything you make is influenced by something else, and no, that's how we make it. It sounds music. dramatic, but nobody, and even Ed Sheeran himself said, "Well, if I lose this, I'm out. I'm not yeah. doing this anymore." And you can think oh, that sounds a bit dramatic, but if every time somebody successful writes a song, somebody sues them. Pretty soon, there's no much, not much point in writing songs yeah. anymore. It's going to end up costing you money to fight off all the lawsuits time and time again. Um, so you can imagine a lot of people thinking, what's the point of writing a song now? Mm-hmm. Um, unless, of course, you're just not very successful and then nobody cares. Right. I was going to say, perhaps you just is, enjoy making music. Yeah, that exactly. One yeah. reason, yeah. So I don't, I don't worry about it if I put a song together, even though I know that I'm using chord sequences that have used, been used before, because when I write a song... I want it to fit in with the old songs that I play. Yeah. So you want I- it to sound like the Flintstones theme tune when you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Fact-checking alert. Fact-checking alert. So I posted this clip on Instagram and Facebook the other day as a little teaser for the show, and I was informed that apparently Ed Sheeran's lawyers did actually play the Axis of Awesome song on the stand as part of his defence. Shows that I clearly have a great, albeit incredibly slow, legal mind, and it serves me right for trying to be clever, I suppose. Anyway, let's get back to the interview with Phil Dolman. Let me ask you, because you're... You've just said you want to do your own thing, the things you're interested in, and it's sort of 1920s to 40s, mm. jug band stuff and New Orleans jazz and blues and all, all that stuff. But you were on top of the pops 20 <laughs> years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So what, what happened there? How did that, that happen? Oh, yeah. well, I mean, that was a, one of, weirdly, that's just one of those things that comes about of being someone who is trying to be a working musician. So it only came about when somebody got in touch with me who ran a music website that hosted unsigned bands. And I got a few of my songs on there. And he literally phoned me up and said, do you know anybody who might be interested in coming along to do this session? I've got a band. I've found all the people I need for the band. But the guy wants a fiddle player and a banjo player. And I I literally just acquired a banjo. And I just oh. went, I can do that. I yeah. don't know if I could, yeah. but that's one of the things you have to do in, to make a living in the music world is so you can do something and then learn how Figure to it do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, it was a very, very tiny, uh, simple part, but a, a crucial part that needed to be on the record. It was a rewrite of Common Eileen. So yeah. you can imagine why we need fiddle and, and banjo for the for the main riffs of that yeah. song. And so I went along to a little studio in a, under a railway arch, recorded the demo for this guy. He was, went away with 100 quid in my wallet and thought, great, I'm a working musician. I yeah. got a call for a session. I did it. I earned some money. I went home. I'm happy. I've done something. All that time, you know, playing instruments wasn't completely wasted. I can go out and work doing this. And then just through a bizarre set of happenings, it got um, it got assigned. And the guy organizing it kind of insisted that it was, well, he wanted a band. He didn't want to just get it signed from the demo because then what would he do about it? Who mm-hmm. who would he have to go and help promote it? So he said, well, let's sign you as, as a band. And so we all signed a record contract, uh, went back into another studio, slightly nicer, <laughs> recorded it again with a proper producer who knew what he was doing in terms of making it radio play-wise, yeah, you know, yeah. making it a hit, lose that long intro, get straight to the chorus, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and they put it out. And for Euro 2004, so it's it's going on 20 years ago. Yeah. And it got to number two. Yeah, yeah. And then the weird thing is your name's on the contract. So you get a phone call saying you need to be in London tomorrow at 6 a.m. because we're on the telly. 
and I've got a record contract, so I've got to do it. So, oh, wow. Uh, this is when I'd just left London. I'd just moved out of London back to Derbyshire. I'm back down to London on the train to do things like CD UK and Top of the Pops and things like that. Oh, you did so, CD UK as well? Did CD UK. Okay. Top of the Pops was interesting because that was a pre-record. Yeah, it was outdoors. So right? It was outdoors yeah. in the in the donut at Television Centre. Yeah. That was fun. We did it in the middle of the afternoon. Um, we could do as m- many takes as we like. We could have a bit of fun with it and still home in time for tea. Yeah. Um, whereas CD UK... Of course, we, I mean, it was all miming. Um, even though we actually went into rehearsal rooms, learnt to play it all properly live and filmed it and sent those recordings to the record company going, we can play live. We are all proper musicians. Yeah. If we ever need to play live, look, we can do it. Of course, we never... never no, that won't be necessary. Yeah, yeah, they didn't yeah. want that, that hassle. Uh, but CD UK was a, a 6 a.m. call. Ooh. And we were on as the end credits rolled. At, at like 12 so o'clock or something, 1 o'clock. 11.27, okay. we went on. 11.30, programme ended. Yeah. And then had to get to Wolverhampton to a branch of Woolworths to sign copies of it in about oh, yeah? two and a half hours. Yeah. So we ran to cars and left London and yeah. whizzed up there to do something else. But it was four weeks of absolute madness. And it just really convinced me that that was fun but not the thing I ever wanted to do. And you know, you imagine yeah. you want to do that when, yeah. you're, when you're a teenager. You oh, get yeah. a record contract, you rush around the country, you sign autographs, you go on the TV. Yeah, four weeks of that, and we all just went, never doing that again. We don't, that's not what we want to do. Yeah. And we could see all the other bands who were there, and we were all older. All these young bands there in their teens and early 20s. So you just think, you're going to do this until you have a breakdown or they just drop you. Yeah, and then what's going to happen? You know, all these really young bands who literally were doing this every weekend, traveling around promoting it, and you think this is no way to to have a have a career. And also, it was nothing to do with music. No, right, nothing at all to do with music. Yeah. It was yeah. it was to do with the media and to do with football and things like that. Yeah, but. Yeah. At least I can say I did it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, it's a nice experience and I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> you know, they're re-running it on BBC Four. Oh, yeah. They're up yeah. to about 1994, 95, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it won't be too long before your episodes will be on. Oh, they, they repeated a football song one when there was a football tournament on uh, not that long ago. I remember one of my kids shouting from in, Dad, Dad, you're on the telly. And oh, I'm yeah? Like, yeah. What? What have yeah. I done? Is it, <laughs> yeah. is it Crime Watch? Is it yeah. the news? Yeah. And she'd spotted me on an old, this football-themed top of the pops rerun still get royalties do you yeah you wouldn't like believe a, pen, a few pennies you wouldn't believe how yeah. little that's the crazy yeah. thing you wouldn't believe how little money was involved as far as we were yeah. concerned in that yeah peanuts absolute peanuts at the time we made a couple of hundred quid each and yeah. that's about it um for a, a song that sold i i think i got the figure somewhere but it was certainly eighty thousand copies or something like that because i remember saying we had to try and sell this many to get top 10 and this many to try and get to number one yeah which we didn't quite do do you know who was at number one when you were at number two i want to say akon i'm not sure if that's i don't even know what that is it was it was a a kind of a a rap okay r&b kind of thing i think it was akon i've certainly still got all the emails and stuff about it so i can can check (laughs) well you're still going i don't know if they're still going oh oh, god probably not no 20 years (laughs) none of those bands are still going i don't think um yeah, but it was a fun experience. But I bet, I think yeah. It's, it's so yeah. different to to what I imagined. That's kind of what I imagined it would be like when I was a, a teenager wanting to be in bands. But actually, no, genuinely doing what I do now is much more satisfying than running around, even if there's this perceived level of of success, whatever that means. I suppose if you're on if you're on someone's TV screen or if you're on a disc in a shop, that's this perceived level of success. Yeah. And yet, in most realistic metrics of what it means to be successful, I feel far more successful now yeah. than I ever did then. But you're still really busy, aren't you? I mean, how many gigs yeah. are you doing like at the moment, this year or this month? I mean, what, what do you do, like every weekend? or I've, I'm just about to hit. So I'm on my way now to Halsey Manor uh, near Taunton to teach for the whole weekend and play in the evenings. And then pretty much... I think I've got one or two weekends free between now and August, but that's kind of festival season. Yeah. So every weekend and then occasionally smaller gigs in between in the in the middle of the week. That'll take me to August. August will be a bit quieter because a lot of the little smaller clubs and festivals don't run then 
because people have gone on their holidays yeah. and they don't want to lose their audience. Then in September, it'll come back up again. I've already got quite a few booked for September, October. And then as it gets towards Christmas, it'll dip down again. And then come March time, it'll start to gradually pick up. And and the smaller gigs come at much shorter notice. So I might have – I've got bookings for festivals for 2024. Yeah. But I might get a booking for a gig the week before a festival two weeks before that festival. Someone will just say, can you do next Wednesday? Yeah. So it's quite nice. I've got these landmarks in the future and then little things pop up in between. I'm not as busy as I used to be, but that's because I am being more selective. How far are you willing to travel for these things, though? Anywhere. In the UK? Absolutely anywhere. Anywhere? Yeah, anywhere. But I used to do that. I used to go anywhere and come back the same night. So, you know, drive from where I am in Derbyshire. I've, I've driven down here. And done a gig and turned around and gone back home again. And then maybe the next night, turned around and gone all the way up the M6 to Lancaster or Preston or somewhere like that. And come all the way home again the next night and getting home at three in the morning. Nowadays, I don't try and drive home. Yeah, I stay and I try and make sure that if I'm doing those gigs, that I'm not going to come home out of pocket. Yeah, I'm going to have covered my petrol. I'm going to cover my accommodation. and And if I make a little bit of money on top of that, to help pay the next bill, that's great. Even better, right? um, yeah. But I'd rather go and drive a long way to do a fun gig for fun people than drive half that to do a gig for people that aren't really interested. Yeah. And that's more or less like the pub scene. And I used to do a lot, a lot of pub gigs, and some of them were great, and there's some great venues that are proper music pubs, but a lot of them are, they get the big book out and say, we need a band for Friday. Pick a band. Um, I remember a, a, a very a white face appearing on this public, publican who opened the door to to me and Ian because he'd just booked a band he'd had before, or the pub had had before, but a different landlord. And he'd just been handed the book of bands that have played here. Yeah. And he'd look and go, these guys haven't played for six months. Book them. Okay. Are you still the same price? Because we paid you this last time. Yep, yeah. Okay. And we turn up with a ukulele in each hand. And he'd say, do you want to hand with your drum kit? And we go, no, it's just <laughs> us with these. And he just literally, the colour went from his yeah. face. And yeah. we had to just go, it'll be fine. Yeah. It'll Don't worry. Fine. We are good. We've yeah. played here before. They'll be fine. And yeah. it was a great gig. It was great fun. We had a, a nice bunch of people along and it was good fun. But it could equally have been a gig where they didn't know what they were booking. Quite a lot of those places just would write live music on a blackboard. Yeah. Which is no real way to get people in to see any particular kind of thing. No, I guess not. Not even yeah. live jazz or yeah. live, just live music. Music. Go, yeah, that's so offensive, that? isn't it, in some ways? <laughs> yeah. That's quite insulting. That's, that's yeah. going to get a crowd in yeah. who don't really want live music. Yeah. But... They want to go to the same pub, meet their mates there. Yeah. And they yeah. might listen, they might not. In, in between gigs as well, you write books and record music and, yeah. and perform, uh, write music as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I wrote a book, oh, 2017 now, how, okay. how Music Works on the Ukulele, purely because some people at a workshop I was doing that was theory-based, this workshop was, came to me at the end, a couple of people said, what book should we buy? that'll help us with this. Is there a good music theory book for the ukulele? But I don't want to have to learn to play the piano and read music. I want to understand all this stuff without having to go back to, you know, the stuff I was learning at school and didn't get at school. And at the time, I said, I I don't think there is. And they said, you should write it. We'll buy it. And so I wrote that book over the summer, um, had 100 copies printed, um, with the last bit of money on my credit card. I maxed mm. out my credit card to get 100 books printed. A car needed to go in for a service. I was It was not looking good at that point. And I thought, well, I might as well. I had 100 copies made. I put it up online for sale and sat down with my wife with a glass of wine and I said, well, you know, if I sell 10, then that's brought a chunk of the money back. And then I can drag the rest around to festivals and maybe over the course of the next year I'll I'll Eventually sell the rest. Them, yeah. And they all sold in half an hour. Really? And another wow. hundred. Yeah. My phone just went bing, 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 bing. The orders came in and I was doing it all myself. So I was going to the post office then yeah. carrying big boxes of envelopes and on the phone to the printer going, just send another hundred of those. Um, because by the time they'd arrived, I'd, I'd, you know, and I'd sent those out, the next batch had been printed and came. I think now 
brilliantly now that I sell them through World of Ukes. So Matt at World of Ukes deals with that for me. Okay. Partly because of once Brexit happened, it became very difficult for me to sell stuff overseas. Right. I yeah, would have had to yeah. have been VAT registered yeah. and VAT registered in at least one EU country. And it's very confusing. Mm. Of course, Matt runs a shop. He had all that in place. And he was already selling his my books in his shop. Mm. So I just said, you sell all of them. And we'll come to an arrangement where we split the the money and then you can deal with all of that and just I'll just invoice you when you've sold some. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which really saved me. And I wrote a second book, the How Songs Work book, I wrote just before lockdown, which was terrible because it meant I ended up with a living room full of books and nowhere to take them. And still a lot of my sales were face-to-face. Yeah. I've got a box full of books in the boot now on the way down to Halsey. They're still selling. Um so most of those were sold online. But again, I've managed to sell several thousand copies. That's incredible, of both yeah. of them. And then I've done some other little books, a blues book and things like that. I really ought to write another one. Yeah. It's been a few yeah. years. And then recording music, I went a bit crazy. Um, I I actually took all my stuff down off Patreon, uh, off Patreon, off uh, Spotify. I took all my stuff down off Spotify uh, in one of those kind of uh, peaks of – of uh, anger that we sometimes get at musicians. You say, when yeah. there was a whole thing about the, the kind of people that spot me, Spotify is generally not popular with musicians anyway, even the ones that use it. Yeah. It doesn't pay very well. No. What's the point in it? But then they started putting in some fairly controversial um, podcasts on there. Yeah. yeah and yeah. paying millions of pounds to have Tens them. of millions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we're, yeah. we're all sitting, all the musicians are going, actually, this guy's sort of spewing hate on here and getting paid a lot of money. And we're paying for that by being on there. For me, that was the final straw. I just went, no. Given as well that some of the stuff, even the fairly old stuff I do, you still have to pay licensing for. Um, So I was paying to get this stuff on there and paying for the licensing for it to be there. So I wasn't making any money from it at all, not even fractions of a penny. And um, so I took it all down from there and I went on to Bandcamp exclusively. Um, and then through lockdown, again, just to try and keep myself busy, I've I've gone from having about 20 or 25 tracks on there pre-lockdown to having, I think we're on 137 tracks. I was going to say, you've got like sort of 15 albums or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Every time Bandcamp Friday comes around, right. I like to try and have something to put out. Got it. Okay. So it might be yeah. one song yeah. or it might be a little EP or it might be a full album. Yeah. And again, that's where technology is brilliant, just like here. This is more or less where the kind of thing I sit at at home couple of microphones on my computer and I can sit and record tunes. So you're just recording it all at home as well? I record it all at home. Yeah. Yeah. I've been an avid home recorder since the 80s. Oh, have you? Okay. Cassette-based four tracks and things like that. So all that stuff I've learned along the way um, now is brilliant because I can sit at a machine now and have – if I so wanted, I can have 30, 32, 64 tracks. Yeah. I mean, you think what the Beatles worked with. Oh, I know. Four it's crazy. tracks. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. no excuse for, for not being able to do it in your own home because yeah. you've got better stuff than any of those bands ever had. It is crazy. Like, you, I mean, like I've made songs on like my phone, on Garage yeah. on my phone yeah. that are like better than, you know, not, not better songs necessarily, but like better production-wise production. yeah. than, yeah. you know, stuff that would have been in the charts sort of, I don't know, 30 years ago or something. Mm. So... It's unbelievable. You do there's I don't want to say there's no excuse, but like there's there's no reason why if you want to make music. Yeah. You can't you blame can't, the tech. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you can't make yeah. a good song with what we've got now, yeah. then you probably can't make a good song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so much stuff you can use. And uh, and for me, of course, because I'm largely an acoustic act, it's an absolute piece of cake. Because I mean I put an EP out or what is it? it doesn't really matter, is it an LP, an EP as those terms are kind of meaningless now, but yeah. a collection of songs that were just me playing the uke live into one mic. So, of course, it took me an afternoon to record it because I could already play those songs. So I just played through them until I got, you know, three or four times each, picked the best take, compiled them all together, did a little bit of studio, but, you know, no no editing needed, nothing like that. The only thing I really did to it was a bit of EQ, bit of compression, just yeah. to level match everything, make it sound nice. And so it sounds like the other stuff on, on my Bandcamp page. It doesn't suddenly get louder or quieter. And uh, upload it to Bandcamp, hit the button, and it's released. I mean, wow. it's it's instant. I put a live one out because I did a set at a festival and we put a little audio recorder in the room, hidden away, um, in a little kind of 
weird ceiling thing. We just thought we could hide an audio recorder up there and switch it on and record the whole night. Yeah. And this was uh, George Bartle at Bracklesham, and he sent me the audio files, and I went, these sound great. I'll pick out five songs that I've not released live any on any other thing. Last Band Camp Friday, that was my EP release. And that's, it sounded okay, just like a little sort of mm. hidden recorder. Yeah. And one of the reasons it sounded okay was it was just me on stage. Yeah. So there's no chance of listening to it and going, oh, the bass is just really, really loud. Yeah. Or the drummer's drowning everything out. And because well, it was up high, you could hear the audience, but not hear them coughing right next that's to the mic. Say, it'd be me, you like, hear the yeah, applause. On the phone or something. Yeah, yeah you yeah. hear the applause. And also, it was at, it was at Bracklesham, um, which is the, the sort of mobile festival that George and Mandy from Opera Lely, um sort of look after. And uh, we were on the Isle of Wight. The people that go to that are all ukulele fanatics yeah. they want to listen it's the best listening audience you could get a, fe- a ukulele festival audience they listen you know if, they, if, if they're going to sit there and watch you they're not going to talk through it like like maybe a pub gig and um and the pa was great and it wasn't loud so a lot of what was being picked up was the acoustic sound from the stage it wasn't overly amplified so it sounded really nice yeah um, and this, I always think I would rather listen to a an average quality recording of a good life performance than a pristine recording of a so-so performance. Okay, yeah. And I also yeah. think once you get the interaction with the audience recorded as well, that kind of drags the, the listener into it. They feel like they're part of the audience. Just one thing I wanted to ask you about was playing at um, Downton Abbey. Oh, gosh, How, yeah. What's the story there? Oh, I mean, it's literally one of those things that sounds great, but it's not. It's a non-story, really, because it's a wedding venue. And we just did a wedding gig there. Uh, it was the wonderful Tristy Vogue who'd been asked to do it and couldn't and recommended us. And so we drove all the way down there to... Oh, so in the uh, re-entrance? Yeah, or, yeah, okay, this was yeah. Highclere Castle. And um, because we were uh, uh, essentially being booked as just a straightforward covers band, but a covers band that was quiet and took up very little space, we we got a lot of gigs by being able to be as quiet as we could be. No Mm. drummer to push the volume up um, and to be able to squeeze into a tiny corner of a little room where they're having the champagne reception or whatever. We'd be leaving as the big loud band for the evening would be arriving. Yeah. And we'd pass in the car park as the huge transit van arrives full of flight cases. We'd just walk out with our ukes. Yeah. um, But we did have to go up into the minstrels gallery and actually play the bride in. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is the most high pressure thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Is to quickly knock up an arrangement of like the wedding march. Yeah. And play it on solo ukulele. We had a tiny little PA system and we had two. We got one set up there so that we could play there. And then as soon as we'd done that, it was quietly turn that off and unplug and literally heads down, crawl away and try and sneak into the next room so that when they'd finished and walked in, we were in there ready, ready to, to do the next wow. bit. So we had two, two PA set up. But yeah, it's a beautiful venue. We were due to play outside and of course it threw it down with rain. Yeah. And they really wanted us to play outside, and we said we couldn't because this is electricity and there's no cover outside. And uh, and they said, well, the rain's going to stop now, and we'd already set up inside. So they said, what if we open the French doors and put you at the French doors? Then you're inside, but you can play outside to the people who will now go outside because the sun's come out. So we did that, and no sooner we started playing than the heavens opened and everyone came in. And we've got our back to them. Yeah. <laughs> We're playing to nobody in the garden and all the people are behind us. So he's kind of su- had to subtly turn around mid-song and then in between songs spin the speakers around and, and do it that way. Wedding gigs were always like that. There were always there was always something yeah. that wasn't quite as you imagined it was going to be. All of them were yeah. absolutely completely different. Yeah. But yeah. all of them, yeah, really enjoyable. Yeah. Um, because you never know what's going to happen. And because we tended to be the afternoon polite music and not the loud band in the evening, most of the time, that meant that we didn't really have to deal with drunk wedding guests and people getting out of hand or whatever, which sometimes happens. We had a couple of weddings where we were the main band where people try and climb on stage and do karaoke and things like that. Oh, my goodness. But wow. if you're the ones playing for the champagne reception before dinner, yeah. they all disappear for dinner. Yeah. And we leave. Yeah. And that's they they were really nice gigs to do. I can, In fact, if, you know... If the money dries up, I'll just get a, a nice load of fingerstyle arrangements and put on a suit and sit in a corner and play those for As people wedding at weddings. Yeah, and that why not? Would, I'll be happy doing that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 
thank you, Phil, for that great chat. I really appreciate it. It was lots of fun talking with you. And what a lot of fascinating and enjoyable stories there. I can't wait to catch up with Phil again soon on the festival circuit, probably, as he really does seem to pop up all over the place. So I'm sure our paths will cross again sooner rather than later. And if you haven't ever had the pleasure already, I really, really do recommend checking out Phil's YouTube channel. He has some terrific and very well-explained videos on there, talking all about uh, all kinds of useful and great stuff, including how to easily and quickly learn all the notes on the ukulele fretboard. It's a great channel, and I really do recommend you giving it a look. Now, did you guys enjoy this episode? Let me know. Or let me know if you'd like to be a guest on the show. Or maybe you have some ideas for people you'd like to hear me talk with. You can contact me anytime at the newlookukulelelytales.com or you can simply drop me an email to uketeacher at grabyouryuke.com. So go ahead and give me a shout. And don't forget, if you'd like to help support the podcast, you can always sign up to my Patreon page just to throw a few dollars my way, and it'll help ensure that I can carry on putting out this podcast for you. And of course, another great way to help out is simply by spreading the word. Let your uke friends and family know all about Ukulele Tales. Hey, it's a free podcast with some absolutely world-class guests. What's not to love? Just tell them to check out Ukulele Tales. There's a new episode every Wednesday, and I'm sure they'll be glad you did. A big thank you once again to Carla for sponsoring the show. Remember, you can get a full 10% off anything on their website. That's any ukulele, a new set of strings, a book, whatever it is you want. If you can find it on the Carla website, you'll get 10% off just by visiting my special link, carlabrand.com slash uketeacher. And that's just because you listen to Ukulele Tales, the podcast. So don't say I never give you anything. And thanks, as ever, to all of you guys for listening as well. I couldn't do it without you. Although, to be honest, I probably still would. So I'll be back, same Uke time, same Uke channel, next Wednesday with another great interview for you. And, as ever, it'll be available in all the usual podcasty places. So make sure you're subscribed. Okay, until next time, I love you all. And I wish you the best. One, two, one, two, three. Stop.